Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 20 of Next on the Platform. This week, I'm joined by Sean Noriega, uh, as you already know. Um, so, Sean, how are you today, man? I'm great, man. How are you? It's I'm beautiful. Thank you. Uh, it was a beautiful day today. Just monitoring. Day. Uh, what's up? It is a beautiful day today. What time is it where you are right now? It's 9 a.m. for me. So, I've just got out of bed. Wow. Mm. Yeah, no. Um, it's uh, so 6.50 p.m. right here. Obviously, yesterday, uh, and as we all saw, you benched 240. Uh, I wanted to, before we jump into the topics of today's episode, I wanted to hear about that. Um, was that just an on-the-day decision, or was that a plan that you had previously? So, um, I've recently reintroduced uh, six days a week of benching in the past three-ish weeks. Three, yeah, three weeks. Um, and I had a very strong belief about its reintroduction. Um, I had done it in like bigger meat preps in the past, usually for like the 2019 Arnold, 2019 Nationals and saw it pay dividends. But it's literally been, you know, almost two years since I've done that. And I've obviously seen significant bench progress only on five days. Um, since that point in time, you know, I had benched uh, 205 at Raw Nationals 2019. And recently have benched, you know, 215 very easily in competition, just missing 218 and a half. And I realized I was like, I think we can, I think we can go back to this because I feel very fresh progress is kind of stagnant and that stimulus would be, you know, practically novel. So after I'd hit 230 last week, <clears throat> which ended up moving really well, I've noticed that week to week, it, it literally is like noob gains when you, when you reintroduce something like this. So I knew coming into that day um, that I would minimum have 230 again, uh, but I was just going to take warmups as if I was jumping to 230. And if 230 moved well, I was going to take 240. So obviously not a, not a real pause there. Very short, but um, I am honestly pretty confident that I can make that same weight move with the competition pause at some point, you know, in the remainder of this prep. How many weeks out of you? Uh, six. Six weeks out. Uh, your, I did see the video and obviously we had some pretty interesting comments as per usual. Um, so you, your last warm up was planned to be 2.30 uh, and you were just going to leave it there if it was subpar? Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you later on, but I'll ask you now. When, um, when you're going to introduce another day, whether it's for yourself or whether it's for a client, what is the big indicator that you're like, okay, let's move on to like a fourth day or a fifth day because obviously <laughs> you can play around with volume per week or, you know, what, uh, you know, if you're doing pauses or tempos or larsens, when is it, okay, let's add another day instead of, oh, let's introduce a variation of or volume or whatever. So are you referring to introducing a variation um, <clears throat> as a supplementary day? Or are you referring to a variation replacing? No, a so just at any extra day. When, when is it, let's add an extra day instead of let's change this variation or, or let's change this variation to a comp? When do you say, okay, no, we actually do need a whole other day of benching? Oh, okay. So, well, the reason I had asked that, I was just, I was curious if you were asking about whether or not to add a new variation, but um, no, I mean, one of the, or I guess a couple of big indicators for me are going to be um, obviously fatigue um, and then just kind of like technical proficiency and, and comfort under the weight. Um, like I've, I've developed like what I would call like a, a fitness fatigue flow chart that, I, you know, you follow for every lifter in terms of determining like where we go with volume, where we go with frequency. Um, 
you know, in simplistic terms. And, and basically like usually the telltale sign that a lifter likely needs another day of, of frequency is if they're feeling overly fresh, like coming in, coming into sessions, they actually feel like very energized, ready to go. You know, they have no low energy, no soreness, um, you know, no difficulty moving, but when they get under the bar, they just feel weak. And I think there of course are many times where people are genuinely fatigued and, you know, pulling away some of that fatigue can, can reveal whatever's there on the top end. Um, but there are also a lot of times where people go through a workout, experience the reduced performance, and then in hindsight say, well, that day sucked, so I must be fatigued. And in reality, it doesn't always work out that way. And sometimes it's literally the exact opposite. So if you run into a lifter who is, you know, feeling very fresh, very high energy, but just can't seem to, you know, really move the weight, um, that could be an indicator there um, along with kind of a feeling of like clunkiness with the movement uh, where the pattern just kind of feels foreign like I know that there have been times where I've dropped from you know three days a week squat to two days a week squat and uh, it gets to a point where like trying to find depth feels a little weirder like the descent just doesn't feel as smooth there are all these like little things that you pick up on where you're like did I did I forget how to do this movement um, so those are usually some big indicators there as far as as far as variations go, um, I think that one is a little bit, um, you know, well, I guess it's actually not even tougher. I would say that you should just go in, in increments. Um, you know, if you have a lifter who you've, let's say you're squatting two days a week and you have one day high bar, one day low bar, and things aren't quite going the way that you want them to, but the lifter's not feeling beat up. The first incremental change I would make is changing that high bar day to low bar right? Like we're not just going to jump to adding another day right off the bat because low bar, even though it is still a squat is like in some ways its own movement where a lifter could definitely remove that high bar day and squat picks right back up, right? It would only be after giving that a shot and seeing stagnation that we'd say, okay, let's add that third day altogether. Um, in terms of like, you know, keeping a variation like that, there are certainly, you know, lifters where you have enough data on where you're like, okay, I know that variation's necessary to stay in, but unless you really have like that history and, and, you know, blocks to look back at where you can evaluate performance in its presence and evaluate performance in its absence, then I don't think you'd really be able to make that strong of a claim. Um, so yeah, long winded answer there, but usually just freshness, stagnation and clunkiness. No, I asked because, and, and in my personal training, like I bench three times a week and they all feel pretty good. Like consistently week to week in the last couple of blocks, every bench day has felt really good and I'm still progressing, but I'm like, well, if these feel good, should I be adding a fourth? Should I talk to my coach and add a fourth day? Because of course, um, you know, feeling good on all three days is not something that I would am used to because you usually feel like, uh, that last day is pretty shitty. So I'm thinking, can I handle more volume or should we just stick with how it is now and just continue progressing? So I think it's like, it is uh, on my end, I'm potting up between the two. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, so we put up the poll on Instagram and uh, most people wanted to hear you talk about the youth of power thing, which is, you know, the whole premise of my podcast. So um, I wanted to dive straight into the youth. Um, now with particularly younger lifters, I see the need, obviously there's a, you know, an unavoidable egotistical side of lifting. And, and, and of course that has its place. Um, and, but the constant desire for singles. Now I know you don't program singles for everybody all the time. Um, weekly singles with 
young lifters, do you see that as something that you uh, think is optimal or do you think more stick with volume for, I guess, as much as you can and, and, and then do singles when that technical proficiency isn't there or what's the process with younger dudes? Uh, I mean, this is such a, you know, I'm going to give you my, my answer, but it, it really, it really is such an, like an, it depends kind of answer. Um, but I'll explain my, it depends because there are a couple things we're going to look at here. It, it depends on which lift it is. Um, it depends on where you see progress for this lifter. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, there are certainly lifters who who thrive in, in lower intensity zones. There are lifters who thrive in higher intensity zones. There are some who are, you know, bell curve majority are in the middle. Right. Um, and then it also depends on personality type, right? Like does this lifter display high levels of neuroticism? Are they, you know, are they more chill? Are they more calm? Uh, that kind of, that kind of, uh, that mixture of, of information is really going to inform you. So, the thing with young lifters, if you're new, right? Like you're going to progress for a very long time, very quickly. Almost um, regardless. Yeah, exactly. So that's not to say that we shouldn't be doing what's best. Um, but I think that a lot of younger lifters probably will surprise themselves when they get under singles, you know, after a training block and they end up blowing past, you know, an old PR, you know what I mean? It's, it's not, it's not that hard to come by. And, and if you're doing the movement, especially when you're new, uh, skill acquisition takes place pretty much any time you're doing reps, right? Whereas maybe as you get stronger and you get more elite, right? Like the, the, the tension and the control and exposure to the top end, you know, might that, there are some people who maybe can't handle that as frequently, but in terms of actual skill acquisition that takes place, like that's really the way that elite lifters are going to get stronger, you know, over time they need they definitely are not going to be building muscle as quickly. They're not going to be adding, you know, as much to their, you know, E1RM as quickly. So, you know, skill acquisition is, is, is obvious or neurological adaptation is going to be, um, you know, you're, what you're grasping at, you know, grasping for straws at uh, as an elite level lifter. So with the younger guys, I think that singles are important, of course, um, you know, in terms of, developing top end strength in terms of understanding what is genuinely required to create enough tension under the bar. Because, you know, if you're newer or you're younger, uh, like I've spoken to lifters who like genuinely just don't even know what bracing is. They're like, Oh, I just kind of take my breath and go, or I just grab the bar and go. Um, so having that exposure is useful. Now, when it comes to like your, you know, your era of like stronger, younger lifters and clout lifting and all that sort of stuff, um, like I said, it depends on a lot of different variables. So I'll go into the first one, which is which lift it is. Um, I think that with bench press, I think it's just very low risk to take singles. Um, I think that, you know, assuming you have a spotter, at least, uh, it's very low risk. If you miss a bench press, you know, someone can lift it up off of you. It's not, in my opinion, it's not as daunting to take a bench single as it might be for the other two. Um, it doesn't generate as much fatigue, which is, you know, obviously evidenced by how much more frequently people bench press uh, a week compared to, to squat and deadlift. Um, and I think that that skill acquisition is, is, is more necessary and you won't really extract as much risk or fatigue from it. Um, so I usually, most of my people have singles in almost year round on bench press. Um, there are some notable exceptions. You know, I've had lifters who just like really get beat up 
from intensity. Um, and if there's really nowhere for your bench press to go at a point in time, you know, let me, let me give an example here. If I have a lifter, you know, I have one that I'm thinking of who's like in his thirties, he's been doing this for, you know, over 10 years, progress is not really, uh, you know, he's got to, he's got to really work to, to squeeze out pounds on his bench press. There was a period of time where <clears throat> he was having one single a week, maybe even two. And it's like, okay, we're just, we're just banging our head into the wall, taking the same single every single week. And that might be taking energy away from the back down sets that day. <clears throat> so we made the decision like, okay, you know, you are, you're pretty much a lifetime, you know, early advanced slash lifetime intermediate. It's like, for you, it probably makes sense for us to really prioritize your volume. You know, you, you don't have the stamina throughout a workout to really repeat, you know, max force, force production on a back down the same way you did your singles. So, you know, when you take a single, it's, it's going to impact the rest of your workout negatively. So it's like, let's just get rid of them for a little bit. Let's, you know, maybe push the top sets that are, you know, rep work here and there. Um, but just like smooth out the week and have more days feeling good where the spread is not so, you know, wildly varying. Um, <clears throat> and it worked, it worked really well. So, uh, for somebody like that, you know, I think that it, it makes sense to maybe remove singles on a bench press. Now, when it comes to, when it comes to squat and deadlift, I mean, there's no question, right. That we need to take singles. It's literally the most specific thing that you can do for this sport. Like there's, there's absolutely no question there. Um, for some lifters though, as I assume you're alluding to with this question and leading into is that. You know, there's a lot of a lot of pressure um, that lifters put on themselves, as well as you know, competing with everything that's going on on social media, uh, leading into a competition to be hitting these big singles, um, and with programming so liberally being RPE based nowadays, where you know you just get an RP eight written on a program, and an eight turns into a nine, and a nine turns into a ten. You know, it's <clears throat> a lot of lifters run themselves in the walls, you know, really early, and that's usually the types who are like higher on you know, neuroticism, you know, higher in neuroticism and they, you know, compare themselves a lot and they, you know, overanalyze things. And, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you a great example of the opposite. You know, you look at, you look at John Keiko, you look at Mikey Davis, you know, John, I think the other day took like a squat single with like 550 pounds. And it's like, that's less than 80. That's like 80% of his one rep max. And he's six weeks out from nationals. And it's like, that is, you know, that's a kind of lifter where you can trust having singles in year round because they will genuinely go into workouts, not try to generate high levels of hype, except that there's going to be variance in, you know, top end strength from week to week and they just get the work done. Right. It's like, it's literally a, a skill proficiency movement, right? Just get the single move on your back downs and that's it. And he's obviously and influenced to... by Instagram and likes and that sort of thing. And I, I imagine that's a pretty big uh, influencer for some lifters with singles is the, res yeah, the response they get from in the internet yeah and i mean honestly like i hate seeing all the old heads say that people like do stuff for clout because there certainly are people who do but i think a lot of it especially in you know at least the way that i experience it because i definitely fall into this this boat sometimes it's like i think a lot of people just put that pressure on themselves right like to perform because you have an idea of where you should be by a deadline you know let's say it meets eight weeks away and you look at where your starting point is and where you're expecting to finish. And you think, okay, there have to be, you know, there have to be increments that I move in that can justify me being, or being able to say that I'll, I'm capable of hitting 
whatever weight on meet day, right? So you try to make those jumps and sometimes they don't pan out and you end up overshooting. And it's, you know, that's a, that's a, a slippery slope for sure. I mean, a lot of lifters just put that pressure on themselves because, you know, you only have, you know, eight weeks till nationals, 12 weeks till nationals, whatever it is, there's always, you know, competitions around the corner. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that there are definitely some lifters who need the, I guess, uh, to become more robotic and just kind of remove that, that whether it's external or internal pressure, just not give it as much, um, you know, not give it as much room to, to grow, um, and, and consume, you know, your thoughts when it, when it doesn't necessarily need to. Mm. Now I can imagine with singles and I'm probably guilty of this too, uh, in the off season, let's say you have a single at the end of the block RP nine. Now this week, I might go a little easier on my accessories because at the end of the day, that's quite a big fatiguing factor for me so that I'm a little bit fresher for my uh, RP9 single. Do you think that in it, there are some, and there probably is, people who will pull back on their accessories way too much to uh, save energy for the singles when they could just be um, getting more gains and you know making better uh, progress from training the accessories harder and then just taking what's there for the single and not, you know, making room for it as such. Mm, I mean, I, I would think that people who like habitually take their accessories easier, it's probably more of like a general behavioral thing. Like, I think that like, I, we know a lot of people who just like, don't do their, you know, accessory work, mm. whatever. Um, but I, I think that most of the time where I've seen people skimp out is usually in a situation like you've described where it's like, almost acting as a taper, you know, for you going into a max out or a mock meet or a competition, whatever it might be. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that, I think that the side that really prioritizes accessories probably thinks they matter more than they do. And the side that doesn't thinks they matter way less than they do. Like it's, you know, obviously they help, uh, especially in the case of, you know, newer lifters who might not have a super high muscular base, but you know, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think that that's kind of like a, a general, like kind of more overarching belief that they just don't matter. That would lead someone to do something like that. I don't know if someone would strategically and habitually decide to, you know, skip out on accessories for an entire block to say, okay, I'm saving, you know, mm. I'm saving energy for my deadlift or something like that. Mm. Uh, so but, you're saying both end of the spectrum are too far that, that way. So you're saying, people who don't do them underestimate how useful they are and people who train them really hard, say someone like me probably thinks they matter more than they actually do in terms of top end strength. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I think that there, there's certainly a spectrum. I mean, let's be real. The, if you, especially if you're trying to like be as comp specific as possible, you know, trying to get an arch max grip bench, sumo deadlift, low bar squat, like those three movements are going to drive 99% of your progress on the big three, assuming that you've, you know, already have, you know, a solid muscular base, right? Like mm. me doing fucking, you know, dumbbell bench press or leg press or RDLs is not going to be what takes my deadlift or squatter bench to the moon. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not happening at this point. It's going to be me just finding dosages that I can like aggressively push past maybe overreach, pull back strategically, overreach again, pull back strategically and just kind of inch the needle forward a bit more every time and just get better at the movements. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've, 
you've had this discussion before with a lot of people. I've had this discussion before with a lot of people. You know, if you're 17, 18 years old watching this and you're doing SPD days and arching and blah, 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 you know, you probably should have been watching Ziz and Ronnie Coleman mm. on YouTube when you were in high school instead of me and, you mm. know, uh, I don't know, any other powerlifters. As much of a bad influence as they are with anabolics and stuff, I think the whole ideology of like, like fucking just getting big as you know as you can is such a good thing for like younger lifters and and um like watching David Lade and shit when I was younger wanted me to like made me want to get big and has helped me a lot uh, in the process. Um, do you so you think like with accessories, someone like John Hack with the way that you know conventional barely any arch high bar probably would benefit more than someone like you who's obviously arching sumo low bar. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I, I actually, I mean, maybe that's a bad example because the conversations I've had with John, I mean, he doesn't really do much accessory oh, work. Well, that is a bad example. For, <laughs> for bench, for bench, I know he messes around with like some dumbbell pressing, some overhead pressing because he likes doing strongman. But like, I'm pretty mm. sure he only squats for legs. He only deadlifts for deadlift. Um, and that's kind of how he's always been, even when he was natural. So um, maybe not the best example, but in no. theory, yes, if you're an average lifter out there, um, getting into powerlifting, like, yes, give as much credence and, and effort to your accessory work as you do for your, you know, for your big three and you'll be in a good spot for exactly. sure. Yeah. And obviously, um, you're very well known for the bench press as everybody knows. So, uh, and that was a very highly voted, uh, topic. So, mm-hmm. uh, we see like this thing with young guys and I, I was guilty of it too, trying to replicate what you do when we really shouldn't be or can't be. Um, now, what would you say uh, the mistakes with younger lifters trying to emulate your arch um, too early on in like their lifting career, sort of cutting off that range of motion, trying to have a huge arch before they've really got the basics down. Cause I think I see, I've seen it where people are like, they have bigger things to worry about than reducing the range of motion type of thing. And, you know, is that something that you see a lot? Cause I do see it quite a bit. Yeah, no, I see it a ton and it goes hand in hand with, you know, what we were just saying before. Um, you know, I think it makes sense to really max out your, you know, quote unquote noob gains uh, early on because you really will never have that opportunity again past your first, you know, year or two of lifting, let's say, to just like have anabolic level, progress Mm. right so so take advantage of that you know building the comp movement proficiency but also moving through full ranges of motion and and building tons of muscle because if you don't i mean a couple things can happen i mean if you miss out on your on your noob gains right and you're just you spend your first couple years being hyper specific uh you're going to build less muscle uh so you know whatever potential you have for for let's talk about the bench you know for for top end strength later on is going to be lower. Um, and then what also happens is like, if you immediately start bench pressing max grip, super high arch, minimizing range of motion, like you're going to lose shoulder range of motion. Like you, your shoulders are going to get shittier, uh, because you're only moving weight through whatever range of motion that you have. And that's the only place that you're, you know, providing strain to the muscle. The only place that you're producing force with the muscle, and the only range that you're allowed, you know, in terms of shoulder flexion and extension, ERIR, like you're just limiting yourself to this narrow window of movement under load and you adapt, you know, your musculature, your skeleton, they all adapt under load to whatever stimulus and range of motion you provide them. And that's why, you know, 
I'm sure you guys, I'm sure, you know, you Declan, as well as the people listening, remember the days where, you know, they would squat and it felt like they couldn't cut their squat depth if they tried, right? Like it just felt like, wow, I can sit on my ankles every time I squat and I'm six inches past parallel. But then over time you start to cut it, you start lifting heavier, you start to cut it a bit more. And then over time it becomes genuinely the case that like you'd have to force a squat that's convincingly deep. Mm. Um, and those adaptations take place. And the same thing would happen with, you know, something like a bench press. And, and I think that I've seen, this is one thing I've noticed is like, I've had younger lifters who are, you know, talented where, it, you know, justifies taking a max grip and arching and all that. I have far, a uh, far higher number or far higher incidence of lifters with pec pain that are younger trying to arch and bench max grip than some of my older guys. Um, I've seen of all the lifters I've worked with, the vast majority of the kids who are the lifters who end up getting pec pain um, are younger. And I, I think it genuinely is related to tissue resiliency, um, to just not having that musculature or, you know, ability to, to you know, control weight, um, mm-hmm. to put it simply. Um, that probably leads to that higher incidence of, of injury, right? Like if you have, have more tissue, tissue that's been, you know, trained over years to move through a greater range of motion, you're probably going to be far more resilient in a smaller range of motion than the lifter who, you know, has only trained with his limited amount of muscle through a very short range of motion. And then, you know, if the load gets heavy enough or, you know, should you, uh, you know, move through a larger range of motion, either on a, you know, a back down, you know, or a a variation or through an accessory or whatever, it's like, you're probably not going to be as prepared, right? You're only, you're only safe through the ranges of motion you're prepared to move through. I can vouch for that in particular, because the more I arch and the more time I spend away from like uh, flat back benching or like close grip, when I do go back to it, it feels shitty. So like I went back to close grip and like my shoulders feel weird. Um, I can't like get into a groove of it. And then like dumbbell presses started feel feeling weird in terms of like my shoulders and my elbows. So like I'm getting pretty good at arching week to week and having that technical proficiency. But then when I go back to do other stuff, I really notice the impact um, that it's had. So yeah, my bench is getting better, but like probably getting less mobile. I'm probably getting shit at uh, dumbbells and close grip and that sort of thing. And it's like something that I realized I'm probably actually going to pull back on the arch a little bit just because I don't want to lose that side of lifting. Like it, you know, if I can arch cool, but if I can't do dumbbell press and I can't even do like a close grip, like what's my quality of training if, if I'm only good at SPD, like, cause that's not all I do. And, and I have to like, I'm realizing now that I have to balance it more and like prioritize, like, like you said, joint health and joint range of motion and that sort of thing. Yeah, mm. not for sure. I think when, the vast majority of people should care about that. Mm. Um, I personally don't too much, but <laughs> well, yeah, that's I'm, a- I'm, literally, I'm literally at this point where like, I don't, I really just don't care about, you know, I guess quality of movement or pain unless it's debilitating for the SPD. Like I'm pretty, I'm pretty achy all the time in various places. And like, whenever I decide to move on from this, like I'll address that, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I literally only care about being good at the big three. Obviously, that's not like a, uh, I guess, healthy, at least in a in a in a life you know lifestyle sense, not a healthy way to look at things. But um, like, it's a short term thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, a vast majority of people listening 
um, are not going to be super durable. They're not going to be, you know, world champions and you're going to want to be able to, you know, move pain-free and switch to bodybuilding if you want or do jujitsu or when you're an old man and you have kids, you want to be able to fucking play sports with them and not deteriorate. There are a bunch of, you know, a a lot of people listening and I would hope a lot of people listening have other things going on in their life besides powerlifting that necessitate being able to move like a normal human. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, <laughs> like people who, um, like we know a couple of the top like lifters, they, you know, fight or like jujitsu, like you mentioned, and that's probably like something that requires a shit ton of mobility, I would imagine. So, um, it probably goes, it probably a good thing. Like just, it might fatigue you a little bit, but it's that mobility and that quality of movement that you can uphold while still powerlifting at like a high level. And yeah, obviously there's a big difference between, um, you and me in terms of like priorities um but i can imagine like benching is the like actual comp benching and some of your accessories are like the only thing that will contribute to your singles whereas for me like simply doing dumbbell press every week will probably help me a little bit whereas that might not help you at all yeah no exactly 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 i think what we touched on before is that you know a lot of people are going to benefit um in terms of their top end strength from a lot of movement, diversity, hypertrophy, all this sort of stuff. Like clearly that's not my case, right? Like the fact mm. that I've had to go from five days of bench to six days of bench to reignite progress yeah. should be a pl- pretty clear sign that like a dumbbell bench is not going to do anything for me. Like yeah. I just have to max out. I have to redline specificity and just kind of pick my battles. Like, okay, this is going to be the time of year where I'm going to deal with my forearms hurting and, you know, bicep tendonitis or whatever. And I'm going to do that for eight weeks. And then we you know, step off the gas when it's over. Um, do you manage that in a certain way? Or is it just like, fuck, I'll just train through it type of thing. Like that sort of joint and forearm pain. I mean, I never, I never have horrible pain. Like I think, I think I've been kind of habituated to like certain aches. I also am like very, so like, I'll, I'll say this, like the, in terms of like biomechanics and like the quote unquote, like movement side of fitness, like I definitely see a lot of value in a lot of what they teach. Uh, unlike, you know, the more like barbell medicine types who think like the only way to warm up is to just like get under the bar and squat the bar. But I will say, I definitely find myself very uh, like, supportive of the barbell medicine side where just like i never will believe that any pain that i feel actually means anything like my you know i could have knee pain my hip could be tight my you know forearms could be whatever and like most people have been taught their entire life that pain it means that something's wrong right that something's mm. like broken or something sprained strained whatever the fuck like unless i'm visually seeing something out of place like there's a 99% chance I'm going to be like that this is nothing and it's not going to matter in you know, a week you I think it's I mean? a sedentary lifestyle too like college people with college people with you know job nine to five jobs that's sitting all the time where like tight hip flexors um you know causes like for me tight hip flexors causes some like knee pain because my quads tighten up and that sort of thing and like the shoulders forward where you get like a tight chest and like sort of weak upper back. I think like I'll have pains in those areas and I notice it specifically when I'm sitting like those days where I have to study and that sort of thing. Like then I'll see that carry to the gym. And then on a day where like the weekend where I'm out doing stuff, I don't see any at all. So it's like, you got to sort of trace it back to the root cause. 
Um, and for you, it might be like your arch, but like for someone like me, it'll be sitting, it'll be studying for too long, be hunching over, looking at a screen. So it's like, and I know that knee pain is just there because I've sat for like five or seven hours that day and it's probably not going to be there tomorrow. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, a lot of, a lot of pain can be traced to a bunch of different things, right? It can be traced to uh, a workload that is above what you're able to recover from. It could be traced to, you know, if, if there's something positionally that's putting more stress on a certain area than it's been equipped to handle, right? So like we take the concept of like, I'm doing too much volume and we zoom in to a smaller scale and say, okay, this, you know, the musculature around the knee, let's say, is taking on too much strain. And maybe that's a result of something positionally, you know, more globally that's taking place. That's like, okay, why is so much stress being diverted to that area, right? Mm. So it could be traced to stuff like that. Um, but ultimately for the majority of people, like, as you mentioned, most people are just sedentary. And if you just fucking move, Mm. like, I guarantee you're going to feel a million times better. Like there are so many people who, if they just went for walks or like hopped on a stationary bike or just like, just did anything other than sitting down, you know, they'd probably feel way better. Um, One of the best posts that I saw recently was of Ben Yanes, and I know you know Ben. Um, it was just like something about having tight hips or sore hips, and it was like just walk. It was like literally just get your steps up, get your steps up every day, get a good average throughout the week, and your hip pain. Obviously, this is like on average that hip pain and tightness will probably decrease or go away. Yeah, and it's like it's so <laughs> obvious if you track like your steps weekly through the week, and you take note of like hip tightness or you know, anything below the hip sort of pain discomfort, it should decrease heaps with steps. And I've noticed it so much with myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when do you now, like obviously with arching when it's not for everybody, right. And many people have found this out. Like when do you say, okay, the, the mobility work and like the trying to force this arch all the time, when do you just call it and be like, okay, it's not for us. Let's just go back to what you're doing before. Like, where, is there like a, how long do you think it takes before you're like, nah, this isn't for us. Let's try something else. This isn't going to work for you. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't give you like a a specific timeline there, but I'll say, I think it's pretty easy, at least from my point of view to tell like who's going to be capable of creating an arch. Like you see some people who just have the fucking flattest like T spines ever. They have like just no ability to rotate at all. And then you get them on a bench and they are just, flat as shit right and those are the people i think that you're gonna see if if there's somebody who can't arch and and here's the thing right like i think that i've done a phenomenal job learning uh how to create an arch and that's for all levels of lifters whether you have a massive arch and a you know super small range of motion like i do or if you just have like a a reasonable size one that's gonna you know help you keep your chest higher and minimize the range of motion however you can um i think there's a lot of stuff that i've picked up on where i'm able to teach pretty much almost anybody who comes to me, how to arch better. Because I think a vast majority of people just don't know how to create an arch. Um, They try to create it from the wrong places. Um, You know, you see an arch and you think, okay, I need to extend an arch my back. It's like, no, I actually think of the opposite. I think about relaxing my back entirely. And I think I'm constrained to the bench by my back and my feet are constrained to the floor. Mm. There's no movement there. So if I can push through my feet, right, I can drive my ribs up and then all that pressure goes into my upper back, right? So if I relax my upper back and I'm pushing as hard as I can with my feet, 
what's going to happen? All of this mass, right? My rib cage is just going to get shoved up through my scaps. My scaps are going to retract, right? So it's more passive movement on the backside. You just say, you know, you say, fuck it, let the back relax, use your legs to move everything else around it. And now you've just established like physical constraints to keep you in that position. Because if you're pushing with your legs, that's one side of this like bridge, if you want to call it such. And then you have all the pressure that's on your back. And then when you unrack the bar, that's just more weight driving you down into the bench that you're not going to move with. So I think that is like a big point of exploration for everyone I work with, where it's like, okay, if you think you've been able to arch before, like you don't know what you're doing. Like we're going to improve upon this. You're going to learn what it's like to like actually try to create an arch and like maintain that pressure through the feet, through the back of the neck, through the ribs, like the entirety of the movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And most people succeed on that. But like I said, you know, if there's somebody who truly can't like create an arch, um, I think you're going to know it pretty quickly. Like you're, you're going to see those people. Like I said, you know, I'm sure you've seen like those, those bodybuilding types who like, instead of like there being actual relative motion at the pelvis as they walk, they just kind of like swing. Oh, that's walk. me. <laughs> that's like just, I... just no rotation in the pelvis whatsoever. It's like, if you can't rotate, you probably are really shitty at flexing and extending. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that majority of people are able to learn enough to be able to create an arch that will be performance enhancing. Now, whether or not, you know, someone should be trying to go max grip and spend their time minimizing their range of motion when they don't have anything else to get, um, you know, whether or not they should be doing that or just saying, fuck it, like, let me get stronger. I think that, like I said, everybody can get to a point where they have like a, a proficient and stable arch because it does obviously help with controlling heavy weight at the chest, right? Like it's just, you rarely see, you know, guys with like super flat backs, who like have just like the most perfect soft touch in the world, right? Like it's just like a much more brute force movement. And, you know, I think that it's because of, of just not being able to, you know, put your, you know, your ribs and skeleton in the same place and, and kind of rely on end range of motion and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it is, it is advantageous to, to, you know, create as much of an arch and minimize range of motion. But <clears throat> like you said, you know, I have lifters who, don't bench max grip. I have lifters who don't have huge arches, right? I have lifters who bench like, you know, normal people, they have full Mm -hmm. ranges of motion, but I think that there's a lot of stuff that we can learn, you know, at the level of the feet, at the level of, you know, the shoulders in terms of like how much you shrug and how much you relax your shoulders, um, how you hold the bar in your hands contributes to how much of an arch you can get. Um, Because if you're benching with super straight wrists, you're not going to be able to bring the bar out as far, which means you're not going to be able to depress the scaps as far, which means you're not going to be able to touch at the highest point. Right. Mm -hmm. So like there are little things that are all contributing to making a bigger arch and reducing your range of motion that don't actually come from just trying to jam your spine into extension. Mm. I, um, yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought of like the sequence of events, how you described it. I do like a, the way I do it, it's like three contact points. So you have a four where you have like, your feet, your bum, your back, and then how you hold the bar. And so I move between the feet, the back and the hands. Like I get them in the spot that I want them. And then I manipulate from there. Um, But how, let's say you have like a big arch lifter, right? And obviously you need a lot of volume, but let's say, um, do you, on average, would you give more volume to lifters with an arch? Because there's like, overall, there's like less stimulus. Yeah, absolutely. 
if you have if you have a bigger arch, less range of motion, the higher the need for for skill acquisition at the top end. Um, you're not gonna you know like we said, you're not gonna get fatigued as quickly. Um, so yeah, I think our high arch benchers they get more volume, they get more frequency, they get more singles. Because um, that's the other thing, right? Like if you look at percentages of one rep max for someone with like a long range of motion and then those same percentages for someone with a really short one you're probably going to see a better ability to rep out that given percentage among the people with an arch the force curve is is it's like you know in terms of where the drop-off takes place it's it happens out of nowhere you know for a for a lifter with a big arch right where you might take 97 percent of your max and smoke it and then just because of how technical it is to go up to a hundred, like if you fuck something up even slightly, like you're getting pinned, mm. right? Whereas if you have like a, you know, look at Chesnificent, if you bench like him and you watch any percentage, you'll be able to make, you know, better extrapolations and say, yep, he's capable of this. He's capable of this. And you could load it and he's just going to grind, right? Like it's going to be, you know, it'll follow whatever sticking point he normally has, which is probably going to be at the top. But just in terms of, of, you know, predictability there it's going to be a lot easier to grind um you probably don't have to have as much exposure to singles right because like i said you know that that skill acquisition is you don't you don't fall apart technically mm. out of nowhere much more a, margin for error yeah exactly the yeah. margin for error is, is super 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 small um if you're benching with a big arch and then exactly like you said you know uh, the, from a stimulus standpoint, range of motion, is super short. So you just need more. Um, and then just from a, an actual CL acquisition standpoint, like you mm -hmm. just need more because there's, there's a lot that goes into being able to, you know, control 500 pounds or whatever on your chest, you know, versus it being a more brute force movement. Mm. Now, something I saw on Instagram yesterday, and of course there's plenty of stupid stuff. It was a long hold with like, 200%. I don't know the lifter personally, way too much weight, like 70 kilos over what they could bench is a long hold. Something that you one believe in or two would no. ever give somebody never. No, I think it's useless. Okay. Well, I wanted, I, I just wanted to double check with you because I had conversation with friends and they were like, Hey, oh, might, it does this. And I was like, I don't think it has any carryover. And I don't personally believe that. What is the, is the, is the phrase priming the central nervous system? Is that what people yeah, say? I mean, it's, 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 kind of, it's kind of stupid. You know, here's the thing. Physically, I think it has no use, okay? Psychologically, there are definitely lifters who in some way feel like they are, you know, incapable of lifting a certain weight or inadequate or whatever they have going on in their head that leads them to get more scared surrounding a one rep max attempt than maybe the average lifter would, mm. right? So that certainly is a strategy that you can use in order to get them out of their head but is it the best one probably not right like the amount of time that you have to spend working up to something like that right i mean i guess you could unrack it off the off the bat but that would be kind of mm. foolish you know if you unracked you know like you said uh, it was 70 percent over your or 50 percent over your one rep max whatever it was right it's like you you're spending time in the gym that you could be spending elsewhere and if something goes wrong, you're fucked, you know, it's high, you know, not necessarily saying that the probability that something goes wrong is bad, but, or is high, but if something does go wrong, you drop it on yourself, whatever, it's like, you're, you're fucked. You're not, you're not lifting that weight up. You're getting, you know, you're getting injured. Um, so yeah, I mean, physi physiologically, 
uh, there's there's really not much going on for for a heavy hold. I think it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty antiquated. At best, it does something positive for your psychology if you have self doubt. But um, you know, as a coach, right? Like this is something that first of all, you're on the programming side of things if you're a coach, so you should be able to come up with better strategies to begin with, and hopefully just be getting that lifter stronger. But then, as a coach, in, in the pure sense of the word coach, you should be able to find better ways to, you know, communicate, um, or instill confidence in a lifter and have them approaching, you know, their, um, one RMs or, you know, near max attempts, you know, with better confidence and execution. You know, I, one of the things that I've always told people is like, I've had, I've had some lifters who are scared to squat. Um, and I've had some lifters who are, you know, scared to bench press, whatever it might be. And, you know, I think one of the ways to, to get over that is to put yourself actually, in, in, in my experience, to put yourself in a very safe environment for a lot of these higher, um, you know, percentage or higher risk scenarios, whether it's, you know, a, a one rep max squat, or if it's a one rep max bench, where like I've had lifters who, you know, I'll tell them to put the safeties up for bench press or put the safeties up for squats and get spots for both of them. And it's like, they'll either hit the weight that they've, you know, been scared of. And they'll be like, wow, I actually hit that. That wasn't so bad. Or they miss and they find out, okay, it's not that bad to miss. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think being desensitized to failure is a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, because if you, if you leave the risk there, then, you know, for example, I'm sure some people would say like, oh, you should like learn how to squat, you know, without spotters. And I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, if you're in a powerlifting gym, like, and you're using kilo plates, like bailing, you're putting a hole in the floor or ruining something. But like, if you're an average lifter and then you're like, you know, someone's telling you in a commercial gym, like you should learn how to bail. Like, yeah, maybe, like maybe that's useful. You shouldn't be failing and training that much. But like a lot of people would probably say that, you know, what you can do in the gym to get over your fear is like lifting solo or whatever. And it's like, I think that that probably breeds, you know, more fear. Like I, I've found in my own experience and with a lot of my lifters, it's like when you desensitize someone to failure by just showing them that it's not that bad. Um, I think they end up actually becoming more confident. Cause like I said, you, you know, you fate, you're faced with a, a one rep max attempt and it's like, okay, this could go one of two ways. Right. I either hit it and I had nothing to be scared of. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm truly capable of doing this or I miss and my spotters bring it down to the safeties or my spotters bring it back up to the rack and there's no harm done. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Like I've had, you know, I have a lifter, especially with all the COVID bullshit, you know, I have a lifter up in Canada and she, you know, had to train at home in her little garage gym or basement gym, whatever the entirety of 2020 and still in 2021. And like, she's always been afraid of pausing like really heavy weights on bench press. Like she would always just jump the gun or, you know, lift her butt up or whatever. And once we got to a point where it was like, okay, you need to put safeties on this rack, put them like, half an inch below where you're going to miss if you were to miss have your boyfriend come over and spot you for your heavy bench days it's like if you fail your boyfriend can lift 185 off of you you know what i mean like there's yeah. the, the risk here is not high like you need mm -hmm. to be confident in failing you know just if you're gonna miss just like miss big like literally do go into that lift thinking you're gonna blow it out of the water do everything right and if you miss like literally nothing happened Right. Don't, you know, don't go into it timid and afraid because you have all those fail safes. And if you hit it, you know, 
you're going to have your best chance of hitting it, doing everything right. Hmm. Not being scared of it. So I, um, I can imagine like it's even not missing, not saying missing is like a, a positive thing, obviously not, but I think unracking a bench that you inevitably miss right because you you can i don't know with you but like personally i know if i i've unracked a bench before and i'm like there's no way i'm pressing this it just wasn't there that day and whereas like i've unracked heavy benches and i'm like yeah like i've got this it's heavy but like i've got it and i think unracking a heavy bench like realizing what that feels like because it's honestly quite horrible and then you know the feeling and then you and then you go to unrack something that you can hit and you know I've got this. And I think if you've never failed before, if you've never failed at like really heavy bench, you're not going to really know when you have it because like there's a fine line. And for me, it's quite obvious which side I'm on getting or failing. Yeah. Um, now with, with, uh, with big arches now, just before we move on the last one about arching, are you giving um, big arches, more high RP work as opposed to just normal bench press? Um, I would say on the, on the singles for sure. Like I said, you know, a lot of my high arch bench presses are definitely going to get um, more singles in their programming. And I think it ex extracts much less of a toll to push, you know, bench press singles, RP8, RP9, even, you know, 10, uh, weekly. I really don't think it extracts as much of a toll as it would for someone who has a long range of motion. I think that that's pretty, um, pretty obvious. Um, I think that while maybe the RPEs are not prescribed, you know, the average, the RPE across a week might not be higher for a high arch bench presser versus like a, you know, someone with not as big of an arch. I think that that's corrected for because if you have a really big arch and short range of motion, the average intensity you hit is probably going to be higher. You know what I mean? So I think that there are certainly, you know, like with the singles scenarios where you can afford to, um, you know, push the RP and not really deal with too much of a fatigue cost from that. And, and even so on, on some rep work as well. Um, I think it depends on the individual, how hard we push intensity, but ultimately I wouldn't say that like the average RPE would be significantly higher in one of my programs for someone with a high arch versus someone not with a high arch, because if you have a big arch, your percentages that you hit are probably going to be, you know, higher than what you would if you had a smaller range of motion and that, you know, that corrects for that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now we'll move on from the technical stuff. I had, I put up a story and I asked what people want to know and, and I had some good questions. I had some pretty, you know, hit or miss like how'd you get into lifting and obviously wasn't going to ask you that um now a couple of the good ones now uh presuming that alex sador and aiden rota stay as 83s how mm -hmm. comfortable are you going to be handling that situation based on your uh background with the whole thing of joey flex and russ is it going to be something that you're comfortable with or, and and also are they both staying as 83s yeah, no, that's a good question. As far as I know, both of them are staying as 83s. Um, they both fit into that weight class fairly well. Um, Alex is obviously on the taller side, but, you know, is, is still um, within range making the weight class. You know, this, this past meet that he did, um, it was a very easy cut, only about four pounds. The previous one he had, you know, gotten a little heavier, but that was more by just, you know, aggressive and kind of poor diet choice than him actually like, 
having a uh, physiological, you know, pressure to stay at that weight. Mm. Um, so he's there, you know, he's not, he's not overly lean at all. So um, in terms of moving up, I think that that might, may happen down the road um, just as he grows. Cause obviously he's super young. Um, Aiden, on the other hand, I've had to really get to try to fill out the weight class. Um, you know, he's only recently kind of gone over the 83s and that's been by force. So, um, he's definitely not going anywhere in the 83s. Now, that's a great question in terms of handling, um, as things currently stand, I mean, I think Aiden does have quite a bit on Alex, um, just across the board, um, and, and that's, you know, that's just the disparity that exists now. You know, obviously I want the absolute best for both of them. Like I always talk about, you know, uh, people will send Aiden's deadlift in a group chat that me and him are in. And they're like, when is he, when is he going to out deadlift you? And I'm like, dude, I hope he does. Right. Like I want to see both of these guys absolutely crush it. Um, as things currently stand, I think, I think Aiden is, is quite a bit ahead for now. You know, I'm not saying that as a, any sort of, um, yeah, you know, yeah forecast for the future because we don't know what's going to happen um but if it ever does get to the point where they are you know neck and neck um you know i would not want to put myself in a in a scenario where you know i have to choose between them or you know they feel like they're being unfairly uh attended to um so you know if if something like this were to happen there there are a couple different ways this could go right you know if it truly ever came to the point where like they were neck and neck competing for an open national championship. And one of them was like, I don't, I don't feel comfortable working with a coach who's coaching my opposition. You know, I, I would understand that. Right. I don't think we're anywhere near that point, but I would understand that 110%. Right. I think that that's something that, you know, every lifter, especially those who take this sport very seriously um, you know, they need to look out for what's best for them. Um, I personally never experienced that with Joey like that. That was not a reason that I, that I had stopped working with him at all. Um, especially because Joey actually rarely handled me. Uh, funny enough, you know, I think Joey actually only handled me for I think one or two meets in my career. And both of those were very early on, like 2015, 2016. And past that point, um, I usually had someone else handling me. Um, but let's say the hypothetical scenario unravels and they both want to continue working with me. Um, the good thing is that, you know, I have a, a coaching staff who stays in the know of what's going on with um, all of my, you know, all of my lifters. Um, and one of the things that I'm doing this year for raw nationals is obviously, you know, I'm competing and I have three other 83s competing with me. I have Aiden Raider, David Shelton, David Chan, actually four, Brandon Rojo. Right. So I have a, I'm in a flight with four other lifters that I obviously can't be handling. So what I've done at this point is I have coaches underneath me who I have given, you know, access to their, you know, the, the lifters, um, training sheets, they're following all of their lifting. They're going to communicate with me about attempt selection. And ultimately like they're, they're going to be an extension of my brain, mm. you know, on the platform handling them. Mm. Right. So if it ever came to that point, you know, they would have, you know, one person would have somebody who's fantastic. One, the other person would have someone who's fantastic. Um, you know, I think, you know, one of the, one of the like, you know, uh, predicaments is like what happened with, you know, Daniela and Amanda, where they truly were neck and neck and they both had the same coach. 
And, you know, in theory, it should be just the, the strongest lifter wins, right? But with deadlift, obviously, we know you can change attempts. And there's a lot of dicey stuff that could happen at the end of the meet. So you really do need an individual in your corner. And, you know, you can't be put in a position to have to choose, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, for a scenario like that, like I said, I don't, I don't foresee happening anytime soon. Um, but I think that if we see it on the horizon, I'm going to do everything I can to either you know, make sure that each person has the best possible coach and handler in that situation. Um, And in the event that somebody were not satisfied with that option, you know, I would understand, you know, that, that desire to, to go elsewhere. Mm. But as I said, I, I, as it stands now, I don't, I don't foresee that happening. Mm. Cause I was under the impression that that was something that happened with you and Russ um, when you left. uh, No. Lex, okay, I because yeah, I'm misinformed. Um, uh, Daniela and Amanda still both with Joey, or did no? So Amanda still works with Joey, Daniela works with me. So <clears throat> Daniela worked with me for the first two and a half years, pretty much. Like she did, she had a coach when she first got into lifting, and then I coached her for several years after that. And then she worked with Joey briefly and then started working with me again after worlds uh, that year because of that, you know, situation. So, um, but yeah, Danielle is with me. Amanda works with, with Joey, but I mean, at this point it doesn't matter. Two different weight classes. Yeah. So Okay. So, cause um, Danielle is going down to the 76s, right? Yep. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And is there going to be like, is there going to be really much competition for her in, in that class? Um, as far as I know, I think that next, you know, kind of in line by forecasted or projected totals, uh, whatever you call them, uh, is Jasmine Penn. But if Daniela maintains, you know, what she's been doing in training, uh, I think that it's going to be a pretty big, you know, gap. I'm pretty sure the best, pretty sure the best total coming into, um, the 76 class now granted the 76 class hasn't existed. So the girls who, were lighter should have a training advantage moving up versus Daniela having a disadvantage moving down. But I'm pretty sure that the highest nominated total is somewhere in the low 500s, whereas Daniela's, you know, nominated is 613. And, and even if Daniela loses, you know, let's say 30 kilos off of that, I think that she's in a pretty comfortable position. I think, I think as long as Daniela makes weight, I think that, that she's going to win. So. And, and the decision for her, like, was it just because she felt more comfortable at that weight or was it like um, Amanda's got the edge on me in this class and I want to win the 76s? No. So it was, it was more of a, it was more of a personal decision. Um, You know, I don't want to speak too much for her, but Mm. she had already started moving down prior to worlds 2019 and then kind of reversed that process because she was like, well, I have to, you know, give it my best shot at worlds. So she had already made a personal decision to that she wanted that she felt more comfortable at a lighter weight, wanted to move down a lighter weight, you know, obviously flip that switch, you know, getting closer to worlds. But after that point in time was like, okay, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be um, an 84 anymore. And then with the, the advent of the 76 kilo class, it was a much easier decision to make where it's like, okay, if I have to cut eight versus, you know, 12 kilos, that's a, that's a, big big difference okay yeah no that's interesting i wasn't aware and like because um and i'm excited to see the 76s because obviously it's a whole untapped 
uh, new competition for yeah. uh, and when is her she's competing at Nats this year as well? Yep, that's correct. Awesome, awesome. Um, now some of the other questions. Uh, we had one or oh, one of my posts was about managing external training arousal. Now I'm speaking about the music, the hype, the ammonia, any possible external arousal you could have. You know, other guys there with you. Um, do you see that as something very important to manage? Because personally, I found it as to be very important for me. Uh, and and the difference between hitting or missing could be the hype or it could be not getting too hyped and actually staying calm. I think that's probably important for like sumo deadlifters and that sort of thing. Um, do you see that as being quite important, that managing that week to week or even session, session to session? So I think, I think I'll answer this in a couple of ways. So I think that if you're uh, either, if you're the coach or the lifter, um, I think that if you're following proper training, you should have predictability of performance across weeks. Now it might take time to figure out, you know, what days end up being consistently good, what days end up being, you know, good, average, underperforming, whatever. Like you'll be able to get to a point where, you have a good idea of which days are the high performers and the low performers, right? So I think that following, you know, or, or pairing those days with high hype and low hype respectively is probably a good strategy. I think there are a lot of lifters out there who, um, you know, especially when you're young, you're like, you know, if I'm getting stronger, I should be able to hit, you know, whatever, right? Or I was, I was talking to a new client recently um, who had mentioned, you know, in the past she had had her, you know, squat single on the day of the week she was weaker and then had you know reps on the day of the week she was stronger and she was getting super frustrated that oh the day that i had my single i couldn't hit what i did for you know triples or whatever on the other day and she's like why am i you know why do i just suck with singles and i was like you don't suck with singles i think it's just that you suck on that day and that's why the single sucks mm. uh so just getting in the mindset of like acute fatigue is a real thing and understanding what the patterns are um, across weeks, I think can allow you to use that hype and in terms and, and manage expectations accordingly. Um, you know, I have days of the week where my squat feels abysmal and I just go in and it's just like, all right, let's get in and get out. And there are other days where I have headphones in, I'm pacing back and forth. I don't talk to anybody. And then on the top set, I have the owner of United put something on the speakers and I fucking go crazy. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I think that using, you know, the data that you have in training and kind of pairing that with hype is, is a useful strategy. Now, when it comes to like a more like general behavioral sense, I think people need to figure out like for them, what actually is performance enhancing? Because I think a lot of people will respond to a threat, you know, by threat, I mean, you know, let's, you have a heavyweight in front of you, right? People respond to it with nerves. People respond to it with anger. People respond to it with, with hype. And I think sometimes people will perceive that feeling that involuntary feeling of nerves or jitteriness or whatever and they 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 create now this this output or of hype or or you know just over overstimulation you know in in an outward sense that ends up being inhibitory to them and and some people it's not for some people it is so i think that for everybody they need to figure out you know what is actually, what is actually helping me here, right? Like is me shaking the bar and screaming and all this before I lift helping me or is it hurting me? Mm -hmm. um, is me getting slapped and sniffing ammonia helping me or hurting me? Like, I think you need to realize, <clears throat> you know, what, uh, how you internalize or how you interpret, you know, that, that visceral response you get from seeing, you know, your one rep max on a bar or whatever, you need to figure out, you know, 
is, is the way that I'm feeling going to help or do I need to, do I need to circumnavigate this situation and, and, and find a more effective way to approach this weight? Hmm. I found it with me, like I'm a conventional puller and I rush a little bit. Whereas with my bench, uh, I'm quite like technical in the way that I bench. So like with a, a deadlift single, I can put on like thunderstruck and like whatever and ammonia and all that. But when it comes to benching, um, I have to be like, I'll put on like something that's slower, like music. I don't have any ammonia. There's no hype. And I just go and hit the single. So I think it's like not only per person, but it could be like per lift and the, the technical side of how you lift and between the three. Um, Cause I know like, obviously there's people like Whistler and like, you know, Alex and that, that they, that obviously works for them. And then other people see it and they're like, Oh, you know, it looks cool. It's good for the algorithm. Um, and I'll try it as well. And then it doesn't end up working for them. And I think people will uh, overestimate how much it can actually help because mm -hmm. for a sumo puller, it might throw you off. And for someone like, you know, I, I've never really seen you get too hyped up for a bench press. I might, have, I may have missed it, but like, I think it's based on your technicality. And like, obviously, like you said, your personality as well. Like if I went to a powerlifting gym and I screamed in front of everyone, I would get super embarrassed. Like I'm not like I'm an outgoing person, but I'm not going to scream in a gym before a lift. I don't want people watching me as such. And so I think it's very individual and that, that was a good response. I haven't thought about it in a, in that way. Um, I, there was a, I actually put that post up and someone DM me about ammonia possibly being placebo and it actually not having any real uh, effect. Have you noticed with your training, like, do you even use it? Um, I mean, occasionally I don't really use it as like, uh, like when I, when I pop open ammonia, I'm not sitting there going, ah, I'm just fucking going crazy. Like I usually, if I'm using it, I'll open it up and just be like, mm. breathe it in. <laughs> it's a nice candle. And like, it doesn't, if you, if you're very calm with it, I don't think it hits you as hard. And you know, it just kind of like hits reset and whatever, thoughts are going on for me it just makes me more just present and just kind of like you know recenters me and it's like okay i just it, it becomes very procedural right mm -hmm. it's it's less it's less it's less cerebral and more procedural um when i use it so mm -hmm. it's it's not necessarily trying to heighten you know my uh alertness or heighten my hype it's more so just like bring bring me to a more like present and, and self-aware uh state i guess mm, very interesting um we had uh yeah and i agree like it's um you get into a routine and like if people like you said it's important for singles because it's routine spd days are routine and then people will go and change up the way they approach a lift or they'll introduce ammonia like way too late in prep or this and that and obviously like your stimulus your response to a stimulus decreases the more that you use the stimulus so like there's a time when you got to, you know, if you're going to use ammonia, probably use it closer to the start of prep and not at all in the off season. Like yeah. if you were to introduce it too late and then it's an extra, um, you know, it's an extra thing that you've got to take care of and it just throws you off. And, and people, people will underestimate like how, how significant a small change could be, especially towards the tail end of prep. Uh, yeah. Uh, another question we had for you from the story was a hypothetical you win the 83s that this nationals or, you know, whenever you beat Russ, you win 83s. Uh, after that, would you swap to the USPI? No, uh, no, no. I, I, that doesn't at all sound exciting. No. I have no intention of taking steroids. So like, I just don't, 
that's the thing. It's like, I, if I'm going to do something, it's with the intent of, you know, winning or being the best or whatever. And like, I don't, I don't doubt that Jawan is like, if I, I tend to be overly like trusting and believing when people say they're natural. Like I know there are a lot of people out there who think that like Ashton Ruska is not natural. There are people out there who think Russ is natural. There are people who think I'm not natural. Right. Yeah. Like I, right. I pretty much believe, I believe everybody in the USAPL who's at the top who says they're natural. Like I just, I do. Um, and I even believe Jawan Garrison in saying that he's natural, but just in terms of like switching over to the other side when there's just, there's no real, there's nothing bringing me over there really. Um, if I'm not going to use steroids, like I just, it doesn't, it doesn't sound exciting. Like mm -hmm. there's, it, I might dabble. Like if the USAPL leaves the IPF, Larry Melee has made it very clear. Like if you want to go win money in a USPA meet or you just want to do it, like we don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. Like we're not going to ban you from anything. So like the showdown, for example, like if, if the USAPL leaves the IPF, I'm going to do the showdown, right? Because at this point, the only thing keeping me from doing the showdown is if they don't leave and it's not because of me, it's because if, I do the showdown, then I can't coach Daniela at Sheffield if Sheffield is to ever happen. So that would just be a stupid, you know, shitty thing that is not worth it to me. I'm not going to win money at the showdown. Um, it would just be for fun, right? But I'd much rather be in a position to coach Daniela and, you know, coach her in a position where she can win money. So, um, yeah, I mean, if they leave, I'll do it for fun, but it's not, a, it's not, it's not something that is all enticing. Also, just like... I, I want to be where the best competition is going to be. Yeah. Um, and obviously like there's a unique situation with Jawan and the 181s right now as it stands. But like, I just, I just think at every weight class, you know, the USAPL obviously has tighter races, actual nationals meets where people go head to head and it just doesn't happen in USPA. Also, I don't care about a deadlift bar. No. Okay. Well, cause that was one of the questions was how, off, uh, how much do you think that a deadlift bar and a squat bar would uh, impact your total? I think like on average, everyone's deadlift would go up, you know, whether it's slightly or quite a bit. Yeah. I think deadlifts would go up pretty significantly. Um, I, I think that it, it given enough practice, like not enough practice, like me actually getting stronger, but just like getting used to the bar. I think I could pull eight on deadlift bar. Now, I, like I said, it doesn't really entice me that much. Um, squat bar, I would say at best, it'd be about the same at work at the worst. It would maybe hurt me a little bit just because, you know, I'm not a big dude. So with a squat bar on my back, the center of mass of that bar is going to be, you know, let's say, let's do the math here, a millimeter higher, right? Like it's, you know, it could affect me. It could not, I have no idea, but again, yeah probably won't no. see me doing too many untested meets no i didn't think you would i just thought i'd um get those people the peace of mind by asking you now we had a uh, more interesting personal one was favorite cheat meal and favorite tv shows and they wanted to know about anime favorite cheat meal favorite tv shows so my favorite cheat meal that I can't cheat meal. My favorite food that I really can't eat anymore because I'm allergic to gluten is pizza. Um, very sad times, but you yeah, know I've been I've I've known that I've been allergic to gluten for like almost two years now. Um, so no pizza, but that would be my option if I wanted to shit my brains out and be in a ton of pain. Um, sushi, like I go to like I'm sure maybe you've seen on my stories from time to time. Like I go to very 
like high-end sushi places with Daniela a bunch, uh, steak. Like I love, you know, super fatty steak as well. Um, what was the next favorite TV shows? Um, shit, that's a tough one. Let me think. I just hope it's not anime. I saw Angelo uh, posted this know. morning um, when he commented fuck anime on that, um, that meme account and he got just tens and yeah. tens of comments of people just trying to like shit on him and people in his comment section with anime profile pictures. Um, just thought that was hilarious. He's always staring yeah. the... Um, I like but- I like some anime. I'm not an anime watcher. Um, like growing up, you know, I like grew up with Dragon Ball Z. Like I acknowledge that it's super corny now, but it has like this nostalgic, you know, there's a nostalgia factor to it. Um, there are like a couple animes that like I I watch here and there, but I don't like serially watch anime. I don't even habitually, you know, by any means watch. Uh, I think people who make it their entire personality are fucking weirdos. Um, yeah. There's a like strong just, correlation between powerlifting and anime and I don't like it at all. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, you know, there's obviously like a very big, um, I think a lot of like kids who want to be strong were like influenced by like these superhero-esque, mm. you know, anime characters from the childhood, like, a, you know, Dragon Ball Z kind of set the the framework for a lot of other anime um, I mean, also obviously in, in powerlifting, especially tested powerlifting, like there's a huge Asian community. So, you know, obviously yeah. there's something there. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of people who like make it their personality, just anything that consumes you like that, like even like, like we're having good, you know, conversation about very like, you know, very topics in terms of powerlifting, but like, like I'll meet people at at meets or just like i'll be at the gym or whatever and like people are asking me just like only stuff about powerlifting i'm like like dude the lift the amount of energy i mental energy i put in lifting is like mm. a vast majority of about how much i want to put into powerlifting like i don't need to yeah. you know that's why well, I wanted to, there are other things to talk about that's why i wanted uh, to finish off the episode with these other questions because like people know you as a powerlifter but i think it's important to like and especially as like big public figures on instagram and stuff get to know them as like more of a person as well because at the end of the day you're a person not a powerlifting coach you're like you yeah. know you're a person first coach second sort of thing yeah in terms of in terms of tv shows let me think so i love south park which is just you know obviously a fucking ridiculous show but it's amazing um my favorite sitcom i think of all time is probably um well the fresh prince of bel-air is definitely up there for me i think that's one of my favorite shows ever um in terms of like real tv shows that are like you know quality that's the problem my answer is kind of shitty because i just don't like i've never really gotten super into like you know the game of thrones type shows or dexter or breaking bad or mm uh walking dead like i've i've never watched more than a, a handful of episodes of any of those shows and i'm sure a lot of people listening are like how how is that possible you know i thought you know i don't know how first of all like i don't know how you couldn't watch those shows but i thought you were into you know whatever but i'm i'm more of a movie guy for sure mm. um okay well favorite movie then if you're more of a movie dude all right here we go i'm gonna i'm just rattle off a bunch lay it of down names. lay it down gonna go inglorious bastards we're gonna go uh there will be blood we're gonna go um the dark knight oh yeah um, what else do we got here we got um goodfellas we got 
Wolf of Wall Street, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. A lot of the Tarantino movies. A lot of Tarantino movies, yeah. Pulp Fiction? Big Tarantino. Pulp Fiction's great. Um, Shutter Island's a great one. Um, Drawn a blank, but like a lot of those movies. I I mean, I could keep going. The Departed? Oh, there we go. Departed is like top th- my top three favorite movies. That's mm. a fantastic movie. I watched it the other day for the first time and I couldn't believe that I saw Jack Nicholson, Wahlberg, DiCaprio, and Damon in the same movie. It was like, you never see yeah. that. Now that they're all so big, they usually see like one or two at most, maybe two with Tarantino. Yeah. But to see all four of them, I was so surprised. Dude, that movie's amazing. It's like mm. fucking four hours long too. Yeah, no, it's a great movie. I, I finished it and I was like, fuck, I'd love to watch that again. It's not the same yeah. when you know the story. When you know that, um, spoiler alert, when you know that DiCaprio gets shot at the end, it's like, fuck. <laughs> Damn, you didn't, get enough people, you didn't give people enough time for that spoiler. Oh, it's all right. Sorry <laughs> if I spoil the movie for you. It's a great movie. <laughs> I'll put a bigger uh, spoiler you're, you're alert. <laughs> your average audience probably doesn't even know how, who, D, who Leonardo DiCaprio is. Yeah, I know. I t- young audience, I don't expect a very high caliber um, movie. No offense to anybody, but you know, you got to have a... Um, you know, passed down from my dad is all these movies that are like from just before I was born or just when I was much too young to watch them. It's like that time of like around the 2000s, 2005, there was like so many good movies that I was yeah. a baby for at the time. But now that I'm watching it, it's just so much better than the movies they make today. Like, uh, you know, one more movie with Dwayne Johnson comes out. I'm going to fucking, I'm never going to the cinema again. I'm just, you know, I'm so over those <laughs> types of movies. Like they just put him, it's like big dude breaks window or shoots gun. Like they just same movie every single time. I love, um, I love rock. Well, I shouldn't say I love him. I, I definitely like him a little bit less as of, le- as of recently, but um, his movies suck. I like him as a person. He's a cool dude. I like the stuff he, you know, like the energy drink he came out with and his brand is cool. And he seems like a nice dude. And he probably is. But people cast him as this just numb nut, like like the fact that they're still coming out with Fast and Furious movies. It's like just Paul Walker died. He's the highest paid actor in Hollywood. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, and everybody, you know, if you, if you, if you get him in a movie, the movie does well, like it's a given. And I can see why, like from a business standpoint, but they could cast him as like what he was in Ballers is so much better than what he is in like Fast and oh, Furious. Ball- oh man, Ballers is a good show. Mm. Uh, now that you're mentioning shows, I remember shows that I've actually watched. Ballers mm. is a great show. Mm. Um, I was hoping you were going to say Office or Friends because I'm one of those people that will rewatch, but you didn't mention either. I like The Office. I don't really like Friends. I'm not going to lie. I no, I don't think of- it's funny. I think it's a good show, but I don't think it's funny. People will like say that people who say it's hilarious are just those people who base like friends is like the favorite show of like 35 year old women who are still single like i think mm. that's their i'm <laughs> um, such a rachel <laughs> no but um uh yeah no office is great i just people yeah people will, like you said it's with anything like people will base their entire personality around something it's like if you don't like the office i don't care but some people will know. take offense to it I don't know how people have watched The Office like seven times over, ten times over. It's like, all right, relax. It's not that good. Like, <laughs> I'm one of those people. I'm one. Of, I literally watched it the other. I watched seasons two to seven because I don't watch the shit ones in like oh. three weeks. Uh, well, I just watch it over and over again. I don't know. I, I, it's like a. It's like a. Um, it's become like an anxiety thing for me. So like between training and uni, like if I need something to calm down, I'll just put The Office on and like go on my phone and like yeah. 
that's guess fair. That's, that's actually that's a good point. Like there are definitely videos. Like I, I'm I use YouTube a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, there are definitely videos that I've watched so many times, and it's just like very good like background noise. Mm-hmm. Like you kind of you already know what's going on, so you're never if you're if you're just trying to like have something going in the background, but never like not something not something new enough where you hear something interesting and it like sparks your your interest right because you already know everything that they're going to say or what's going to happen so it's just good to like have something going and mm. you know be on your phone or relax or whatever it might be so i get that yeah so yeah exactly like you want to be able to put it on and like be listening every few minutes and it's still I'm speaking of good YouTube videos. Um, you probably don't, but David Lade's videos quality as of recently has just gone insane. Have you watched any of the start of any of his recent videos? So I know that David Lade makes good videos. Like I've seen some of like the edits and the, and the kind of uh, the organization of some of them. Cause I've like, I've watched some of his videos. Um, I don't watch David Lade. I never watched David Lade anything. Um, like I've just never, I've never gotten super into like the like aesthetic tall white dude section of fitness. Like it just never, it never really like got me going. So yeah, but yeah, I have, I have seen what you're talking about. Like I have immense, immense respect for people who like really put in the effort to make their videos a production. Mm. Yeah. Cause recently like the start of his, like he could make a feature length film, like the start of his YouTube videos recently. I, I, cause like you're older than David, right? But I'm younger. So like when I got into fitness, he was like the dude, like you see David and Dylan. And then when you get into powerlifting, you see like you and some of the other big names, but mm-hmm. um, David for me was like that first inspiration and so many listeners, I could probably say the same for so many listeners um, because he was just that figure and that guy before Jim Shark was a big clusterfuck of whatever. So it's like, um, you know, and now like I enjoy like his stuff. It's just super cinematic and just super yeah. entertaining and like big props to him. I, I don't know whether what's going on with his injuries and stuff, but I wish he'd come back. Um, now, two more viewer questions that we'll knock out before I let you go. Um, toxicity within powerlifting. Uh, do you think it's a good or bad thing for growing the sport? Now within the sport, it, it's, you know, but outside of the sport, do you think when, a, a normal person has a look in and they see the sort of, because it's quite a toxic community at times. And it, it can be. Um, do you think that's a good thing? Because in terms of any publicity is good publicity or do you well, think? I it... No, I don't really know what you mean by that. You got to elaborate a bit. I don't know so, what you mean by toxicity. So like when you look into powerlifting, like a lot of people will say like, Oh, it's a pretty welcoming, welcoming sport and all that sort of thing. But from like a, uh, a new person's standpoint you could get you know you look at other people and, and people just disregard you because they're, they're not as strong you're not as strong as them or like oh bumpers because you don't have access to a powerlifting gym and that sort of thing and like they get discredited because they're new or like that guy who asked david wilson what a velocity tracker was and he just shat on him and it was like yeah. okay but that's a pretty valid question because i didn't know what that was until about a year ago and i had to ask someone because i didn't want to sound stupid on instagram so yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that the, I think the powerlifting community is uniquely nice compared to others. Like bodybuilding is fucking gross. Like, I mean, um, among a lot of like the higher level, like IFBB guys and NPC or maybe not NPC as much, but like a higher level IFBB guys, like a lot of them are dicks. I'm not saying every one of them is, but like, there's a lot more animosity between them than there is amongst like powerlifters. Um, 
you know, and the community just as a whole, I think of powerlifting is just more communal because you go to big meets and everyone kind of competes. Whereas like bodybuilding, um, you know, is kind of more scattered all over the place, right? Like if you're a bodybuilder, you don't necessarily compete. And if you compete, it's not like, you know, uh, I would say the vast majority of people in, in bodybuilding, for example, I know I'm just kind of rambling, but in, in bodybuilding, for example, like the percentage of people who actually do shows where a bunch of people convene, you know, meet up together is Lower. much smaller than in powerlifting. Um, and you usually like, I think a lot of like higher level powerlifters lift in groups, whereas bodybuilding, that's not the case. Like, I think it's just a much more communal sport. So I don't, mm. I don't, I, the toxicity thing, I mean, I don't think it's a positive in terms of how you described it, but I also just don't really think it exists. Like I think powerlifters are just, I think that the community as a whole is pretty welcoming. Mm. Um, I don't really see any sort of issues. I guess, really. I, I guess there is definitely now that I think about it, is different we live in different countries so that yeah. could be a big factor with 100 percent. that's the, i have no idea what it's like in mm. france or australia or the uk like i literally have no idea what those mm. communities are like that's that's a good point because my reference and my exclusive reference when i think of this is i think about what it's like at raw nationals or what i think about at collegiate nationals mm. or whatever it's like everybody's super super you know it feels like wow this is this is the greatest place in the world right now. I'm surrounded by all these people who like the same thing I do. And this is going to be a ton of fun. Like I, I genuinely think raw nationals week is like the best week of the year. Okay. Well, that's interesting because I don't get that feeling from the meets that I do, which, yeah. So uh, there's definitely we're in. I'm in an untested fed and you're in a tested fed. I obviously compete tested, but um, so I guess there's different federations, different countries, obviously a uh, huge, which I didn't realize when I asked you the question, but yeah, definitely a different, um, completely different thing over here. Powerlifting is, uh, finally, before I let you go, um, what can we expect to see from Nori apparel? Now I have had a bit of insight, but if you're cool to talk about it, if people have lasted right to the end of this, I'm sure they will. Can you give us any hints? I'll, I'll tell, I'll give you guys a little bit of stuff. So, so this next launch, it's, uh, I got the proofs this week and the actual, uh, what's it called? uh samples not samples no the actual oh. shirts and all the and all the product will be here next week um and what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna send some out to people that i would want to promote them i'm gonna take pictures in them have people take pictures in them and kind of build up the the launch it's probably going to happen sometime um you know end of this month maybe beginning of june um and you're gonna see uh, a couple different pieces. There's going to be um, a couple t-shirts on different materials. So it's not just going to be the, you know, the same black next level t-shirt. Um, there's going to be a really, really comfortable, uh, like crew, you know, like champion crew neck style. Um, uh, crew neck, like I said, mm -hmm. um, sleeveless. Uh, we're going to be doing shorts. We're going to be doing, um, there's a hat that I want to make. Um, so in this next launch, the designs, I'm not going to give away the theme yet because that's yeah. something that's going to be announced. Um, but after this launch, what's already in the works is a successive one with an artist. And, and I make the dis distinction because usually, you know, you work with designers who are, you know, I mean, I guess you could work with, you know, whoever you want to, but like 
a lot of the stuff that I've had done so far is like graphic designers, you know, kind of making their own stylistic decisions for different typefaces and colors and locations. Um, but I'm working with like an actual, you know, on this, this next one, an artist who does his own drawings and everything. So mm -hmm. it's going to be, um, you know, his art style with that's, you know, inspired by uh, some of the concepts that I've brought to his attention. So it'll be really interesting. But yeah, I mean, this one has taken a bit longer than I wanted it to. Um, I originally had started working with a designer months ago who kind of, a, he agreed and was super excited for the project. And then he had, you know, gotten a, a, a full-time offer somewhere where he just started lagging on getting the projects done. Like, you know, we had deadlines and checkpoints that he wasn't meeting. And then eventually got to a point where he's like, I can't keep doing this. So um, that really put a, a damper on things and, and kind of delayed it. Um, but yeah, this next, this next launch will probably have five pieces in it. Well, not probably, it definitely will have five pieces in it. And you should expect to see it end of May, early June. Perfect. I'm excited. Yeah. Your last, the last drop did super well. Like, and obviously you know that, but like the, even for me who doesn't follow that many people, I saw it everywhere. Like really? everybody, well, just like any lifter that I follow at some given time in the week is wearing the no bad days tee or like, and even in Australia, there's some people like Australian lifters that I've seen wearing it. So I was like, Oh, it's just, you know, and I, I know cool. you like you coach a couple guys here, but like, yeah, uh, it is cool to see it make all the way to Australia. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. I'm very excited and I'm sure you'll keep us updated. Thanks heaps for coming on, Sean. Oh, uh, thank you for having me, man. And, I appreciate it. No, you're right. I, um, you know, I went away after we decided we wouldn't. I tried to avoid the, how did you get into powerlifting and this and that. So I've, you know, tried to give the people what they want to hear. And, and we had a vote in, on Instagram and people said uh, power, youth and benching. So, you know, yeah. focus around that. Uh, if you made it to the end, right at the end of this episode, thank you very much for listening. Uh, thanks again, Sean, for coming on. Uh, this one is going up tomorrow. Sounds good. I'll thank catch you, man. you later. See ya.